Welcome to another episode of Telegeography Explains the Internet, the show that explores the business behind all of the ways humans stay connected around the world. I'm your host, as always, Greg Bryan from Telegeography, and today my guest is Phil Gervasi. He's the Director of Technical Evangelism at Kentic. What a great title, right? So, um, and, and you can hear it when you talk. He loves talking about this stuff. He gets really animated about it. Uh, so we had a great conversation. Our general topic for this episode was a sort of state of the union, if you will, on the corporate WAN in light of digital transformation, cloud, SD-WAN adoption, MPLS utilization, that kind of thing, which really brought us down a lot of different roads, but always with that common theme of where are we with how enterprises construct and utilize uh, their WANs. So this included, uh, you know, the state of lift and shift into the cloud, the perseverance of MPLS, some real use cases of SD-WAN that have emerged maybe apart from some of the earlier kind of uh, suggestions on what SD-WAN would be good for. And of course, because it is with Kentic, uh, we talked a lot about how these changes in the network have impacted visualization into network performance and security and really how that needs to and is evolving uh, to match these changes. So with that, I welcome you to this episode with Phil Gervasi from Kentic. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Excellent. So, um, as everybody who listens to the show knows, we always kind of start with a, a brief introduction of yourself and your company. Now, I've had a couple of your colleagues from Kentic on before, um, but I'd, it'd still be useful to know, uh, you know, precisely what you do at Kentic. So, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, and what you're up to at Kentic. Sure. So, I was a network engineer, a traditional network engineer, working in the trenches for for years, for 15 years or so, and uh, and then I, I got into you know design architecture, working with customers directly to figure out problems. I love doing that, by the way, just keeping mm-hmm. my hands, you know, uh, working in the in the trenches, like I was saying, out of the abstract, built. right? You know. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved it. I loved it. I really did. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, and then I had an opportunity to get into kind of a technical marketing role. Uh, mm-hmm. my, my title is uh, technical evangelism, which is really all about, you know, like the, the word evangelism, bringing the good news to the world about what Kentic is all about, my current right. company. And and as you said, Kentic has been on before. And what we're all about is uh, is network observability, which is kind of a, a new term. Um, you know, a lot of folks are familiar with the term observability. And then we mm-hmm. added that prefix network. Uh, for very specific reasons, which you know we can get into a little bit, but ultimately, what I do at Kentic now is uh, is I go out and and go on podcasts and write blog posts and and do you know demos to really show folks, kind of like Missouri, right, the show me state, <laughs> to really show folks that yeah, this is this is what we're all about here at Kentic. These are the problems that we could solve for you as a network engineer trying to to keep the lights on and and, and keep things working. And so that's what I've been doing for the past few years, and I love it. I really do. I mean, I get to do kind of a mixture of a lot of different things on the creative side right. and the technical side, figuring mm-hmm. out demos. And what I didn't mention, I'll mention it now, is that I was a 
I was a high school English teacher many years ago. Oh, no kidding. All right. There's a, there's a lot of uh, little twists and turns on your CV there. Yeah. A lot of twists and turns, all unexpected twists and turns for the most mm-hmm. part. But here we are. And, uh, you know, sometimes I go, I look back and I regret and say, oh, I wish I could have gotten to tech earlier or sooner and skip this mm-hmm. and skip that. But my goodness, all those things really make up who you are, you know, yeah. and, and the abilities and skills uh, that, that kind of get you, get you to where you are today. So. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like from your role, you have that ability to uh, pull out of the trenches a little bit and maybe, you know, take a look from from uh, the observation tower and kind of see what what the market is doing in in the broader sense. And and that's why I thought it would be great to have you on to sort of um, discuss your your views on uh, what is going on with the WAN. Like, what should we be looking for? What uh, what do what are the the delta? What's the delta really between kind of some of the expectations that people have had and what we're finding on the ground sort of post-COVID 2022, um, how things are really shaking out. So so just as, as a, a bit of quick background on that, uh, when we were talking about this earlier, um, you had kind of sort of brought up the the broad topic of talking about um, mm-hmm. SD, uh, SD-WAN, the impact of that on on the demand for MPLS and, uh, and changes to to the network. So I, I looked at a little bit of our WAN manager survey data just to get a feel for that. And, you know, definitely we have seen MPLS utilization diminish over the years. We've been doing that study since since 2018. It has gone down over that time. It's early days in my 2022 study, but it looks to be kind of flattening out, although DIA and broadband are still growing, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But in other words, we're seeing that the sort of pullback of MPLS demand kind of stabilizing. And and I've talked to a lot of end users who have mentioned that, you know, maybe the, the promise of SD-WAN was at first something like a an internet first kind of strategy, but we found that we really do need to maintain some amount of MPLS. Um, uh, but we have to have those local internet breakouts. We have to keep, um, uh, you know, having alternative transport available and that sort of thing. So, Phil, what's your take on this? What, what, what the the people who were decrying the the death of of MPLS in the last few years yeah. um, were they were they wrong? Are are they yet to be proven correct? What's your what's your uh, take there? So, uh, you know, did SD-WAN uh, ring the death knell for, for MPLS? And I don't think it has. And mm-hmm. so I don't think that uh, that means that, you know, it, it was a completely false narrative and that MPLS is here to stay and, you know, SD-WAN that's, and it's all bogus. No, no, not at all. What I believe is, well, it's based on my experience, um, mm-hmm. you know, designing, installing, selling SD-WANs for a long time, right? And, and traditional routing as well. Don't get me wrong. Right. Um, and what I saw over time is that customers' eyes lit up based on conversations not having to do with getting rid of their MPLS for a mm. few different reasons. Mm-hmm. And so I saw that over time, right? So wh- when did when did SD WAN start to become a thing? 2015, 20, 2016? Yeah, yeah, exactly. 16, 17, no. uh, as as a commercially available product, you know, right. with with that name. Yeah, yeah. 
But it didn't become ubiquitous out there in the field, actually mm-hmm. deployed and in use until maybe just a few years ago. Uh, you know, a few years ago, I, even pushing it a couple years ago, it would crest the 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 sort of majority of of enterprise networks I see anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. There you go. Yeah. And so what that means to me is that I saw folks start off with the hypothetical, right? The narrative was we're going to save money uh, by getting rid of your MPLS. We're going to you know do all these things, and, and it's going to be great. We're going to consolidate, go over the public internet, and it's going to sound beautiful. Your your real time protocols are going to work great, no problem. But then you started to deploy it, and then you started right. to see the reality of those iterations. And and again, it's not like it was a false narrative. It's just that over time, you got to see you know when the rubber meets the road. How is this really going to operate, both from a network operations perspective, and then also out in the world, you know, dealing right. with ISPs and and things like that. So what I saw were that a lot of a, a lot of large enterprises especially that negotiate contracts with service providers because mm-hmm. they have so many locations and and that they have that weight they weren't able to just ditch all their MPLS. They were under right. contract for years. Right. Um, and sometimes they were able to negotiate such a low price that it actually mm-hmm. made financial sense to keep it anyway. Mm-hmm. And so so sometimes what I saw was that getting rid of MPLS was not either cost effective or not a technically you know good choice. Keep right. it as a backup. Keep it as your primary, even because it's extremely low latency. You know, you know your you know your sub millisecond latency and pings and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's a high quality uh, circuit. And so the narrative started to change, and it wasn't getting rid of MPLS. It wasn't saving money, although that did happen from time to time when you mm-hmm. had all these mm-hmm. locations that were like my um, my retail locations where. I didn't have those contracts uh, that lock in, so I could right. get rid of my MPLS and go DIA or or just broadband. Fine, right. but generally speaking, that wasn't the case. And uh, and and the conversation changed to how can I more easily get you connected to your cloud resources, right? And uh, or you know if you want to add Casbys in there and things like that, so it's cloud in the sense that it's something that's not on prem. And how can I make your life easier as an engineer managing hundreds of sites? Mm-hmm. How and I would mm-hmm. say this to my customers. Hello, Mr. Customer. How would you like to manage all 500 of your sites from one location with you know one set of templates, with one set of certificates, and then deploy it all you know that right. way with clicks of buttons as opposed to uh, logging into the CLI of 500 routers? I'm telling you, <laughs> engineers' eyes lit up and said, "That is amazing. Can you do that for me?" And uh, and that that's kind of what became the conversation. Mm-hmm. There's a security story in there, of course because you can um, uh, deploy those certificates more easily. You can templatize your security processes and, and policies. And, and the, so that, that's all true. Um, but the network operation story and the cloud connectivity story is really what seemed to drive my conversations around mm-hmm. SD-WAN for a few mm-hmm. years. Um, now, MPLS, when it comes down to it, is still what runs the internet. I mean, you go to all the different service providers, it's BGP and MPLS in the backbone. So, right. so ultimately, no, MPLS is not going away. It's not um, not being supplanted or replaced by SD-WAN, but SD-WAN is then just a way that we're augmenting network operations and augmenting uh, networking today. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember the SDN conversation. Remember that software-defined networking? That kind of evaporated. <laughs> we yeah, don't talk well, about yeah I mean, it, certainly for the for the enterprise customer, it never really became relevant. It ended up being something for the carriers to think about on their end and automation yeah. of, of, you know, provisioning and stuff like that. But 
yeah, I mean, uh, you know, anything that was relevant for the enterprise essentially from that became SD-WAN, I guess, you know, so. Yeah. Well, I mean, but that's the thing. This was kind of one of the first real manifestations, uh, you know, unmasked. So, you know, as opposed to like open flow and things that a lot of enterprises didn't, uh, enterprises didn't really use or experiment with. But SD-WAN, you know, you started to talk about a centralized control plane and centralized policy and, you know, being able to um, add some uh, programmatic interfaces to managing your WAN infrastructure at, at, for a large enterprise, not necessarily some super hipster web scale company. Right, right. right. Um, so I think that SD-WAN was one of those real palpable first manifesta manifestations of SDN mm -hmm. uh, in networking. And uh, where that is today, you know, I don't know, it's not necessarily a conversation about SDN, but you right. know, I wanted to throw that in there because I think that there is a bigger story there about more than just MPLS and, and how now that we really are, we're in the throes of, you know, replacing routers and, and, and training on, you know, Viptela and Silverpeak and all these things and doing all these things, we're starting to see what the reality truly is, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, so I want to, I want to sort of maybe pull back a little bit in terms of, in terms of the, the thinking for this, right. It was certainly, you know, if we went back five, six years ago, like you were saying, um, when folks were talking about getting rid of MPLS, it was for cost. Then, like you said, you have some contract lock-ins or carriers saw the writing on the wall, at least shrunk the delta between MPLS and DIA, you know? So, um, and, you know, that I think happened, but it, it sort of has, uh, you know, diminished in comparison to the real impetus being, getting away from centralized breakouts, right? So it's, it, it really kind of ties all back to digital transformation, the promise of shifting all of your compute off-prem and all that kind of thing. Um, how do you think that has played out in terms of where we, there was a big run-up to move everything to the cloud? That was the, the impetus for having uh, local instead of centralized breakouts. Um, but where do enterprises find themselves with that transition now, you think? You mean just lifting and shifting everything into the cloud? Is that what yeah? Kind of what uh, has lift and shift uh, lived up to his promise? Um, is it yeah. is it going to be the way that uh, everything keeps moving? Yeah, yeah. Well, no. I think if you want a straight answer, no. But it's really interesting that you bring that up because of the parallels here between the cloud narrative that has changed in very recent days, and then the SD WAN uh, conversation narrative that has changed over the past few years. Right. Mm -hmm. So the initial narrative around SD WAN was save money by switching to all internet circuits and getting rid of MPLS, and then that changed because we saw the cost ramifications of doing that, the uh, uh, all the different business and technical constraints that really started to emerge only after we began to implement and use the technology. Same thing with cloud. Mm -hmm. I remember when from the sea level, everything was, let's get rid of all our servers in our data center, shut it down, lift and shift it all, all our workloads, all our applications into the cloud, whatever cloud it happens to be. We will own nothing. We will pay for everything as a service. And mm -hmm. then we'll all get massive Christmas bonuses. You know, end of your right. bonuses yeah. will be flying. Yeah. That didn't really happen because what happened was over time, we started to see, right, as the technology began to be consumed more and in various different ways, sometimes ways we didn't expect, we start to see, oh, wait, this application, no matter what we do with it, doesn't really perform as well in the cloud, mm -hmm. in, in uh, whether it's AWS, Azure, GCP, whatever it happens to be. Whereas this application works great in the cloud. Okay, great. 
And then this application over here, my goodness, it's costing us so much to move data back and forth, and we're not really using it as a mission critical application. So does it make sense to put it in the cloud? Because I didn't expect that bill. So I'm I'm going through this kind of top of mind, you know, uh, kind of walkthrough here, yeah. only to say that we are creating a new strategy and being more deliberate, deliberate about how we look at this, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just lift and shift everything anymore. That narrative is is crumbling and changing. Uh, I'm seeing blog posts and hearing podcasts that are discussing this very thing. Let's be smarter about what we are moving to the cloud. Let's look at uh, our performance metrics and see where it makes sense to put this um, uh, this very latency sensitive application, for example. You know, I, I had healthcare customers where and this was not necessarily a cloud discussion, it was SD-WAN discussion. A healthcare customer in uh, in North America in the U.S. that had uh, some uh, one mission critical application in particular healthcare, so hospitals, right? right, operating rooms, people's lives, and uh, there were very strict latency requirements on this um, MRI imaging software thing that they were using, right? Absolutely, they were experimenting yeah. with putting parts of this into GCP, didn't work mm. well, and we were also discussing SD WAN, and I could not promise them that they would get the same performance that they were getting on their MPLS. So mm -hmm. they kept all their MPLS. Mm -hmm. Now that, that is an SD-WAN conversation, but you can see the parallels with cloud. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's right into the, uh, you know, what you mentioned about is lift and shift really like a, an end all one size fits all solution? The answer is no mm -hmm. way, not anymore. Or maybe it never was, not anymore. Yeah, so. you know, that, that's the thing is that, so when, when, I, when I think back to, um, uh, you know, years of doing this kind of WAN manager survey thing that we do, at telegeography, we we certainly saw always that the the biggest plurality of respondents about their sort of cloud strategy was was that there's a mix of some stuff staying on prem, some stuff moving to the cloud. I definitely do uh, see what you're saying though that um, that there is I think more careful consideration to the application to the data flow of the application now uh, because. In the past, there there were some uh, respondents who were kind of along the lines of there's some things I can't move off prem even if I wanted to because they're still stuck in like a mainframe that one guy knows yeah. how to operate right. or something like that, right? So so I, I think you know that 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 part was always there. I do, I do think we're we're seeing more of the kind of like well you know maybe this isn't something that that uh, that belongs in the cloud is. And this is getting a little bit far afield from where I was originally going with this, but I, I, you know, I'm curious to hear your take on it. But is the push from the the CSPs and from from the the neutral data center providers to to move things further and further to the edge? Does does that help with some of this problem, or do you think it really comes back to rethinking, um, you know, how the network and and the cloud strategies work together? Yeah, I have yet to see how that's going to play out with regard to cost. So I really mm -hmm. don't know. I don't know about that. But for performance, yeah, I mean, right. This is how CDNs look at this, isn't it? Um, you know, ultimately, how do I get the uh, you know the resources as close to the, those who are consuming it as possible? Um, and uh, if it is in some region of AWS that's thousands of miles from where you're right. sitting, um, or if it's in a data center down the hall, you know, the performance is going to be better when it's closer. So. So, uh, you know, that that's going to be a consideration here, because when we talk about both SD-WAN and then lifting and shifting to the cloud, uh, it's not just about cost. It is about performance. And mm -hmm. I think that it's only in recent days that we've had some of the visibility tools and, and methods and even thought processes. How do we do this to be able to see, oh, this is what's going on. This is why my performance now stinks because this application's in the cloud or right. or uh, it's a, you know, uh, we, we're trying to uh, 
put this new application out there that's built on containerized micro architectures or whatever, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's distributed in multiple clouds and on-prem. And how do you look at the performance to even know that it's because it's in the cloud that that's the problem or because of its geo that's the problem? So the visibility tools now, uh, and of course, working at Kentic is that's one of the things that I focus on very right, much. Right. Visibility tools that we have and ability that we have. Um, I think allows us to make those better decisions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, you know, since you brought that up, I think um, uh, one, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was, okay, so, you know, in, in order to understand how things are performing in this new kind of network, obviously you need visibility um, in, into the network. What about the, the fact that um, the sourcing strategies have really changed for a lot of this? So, uh, again, looking at at the kind of survey data that we have, it's much more common to use maybe a very small number of large providers for MPLS than it is for DIA or broadband, especially broadband. That's where we see folks much more willing to kind of branch out to the the best in breed by country or or something like that. When when your network is all of a sudden kind of fractured by who owns it, where it's going, um, what kind of challenges does that present uh, for visibility? For, from a visibility perspective, therein lies many or lie many challenges. Right, What's the plural right. of lie? Lay? I don't know. Um, yeah. Uh, a lot weren't of weren't you the English teacher? <laughs> I was. That's I was. And that was one of my don't hardest. Don't me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, I, and I actually taught traditional grammar, which is yeah. crazy. But in any case, um, a, lot, a lot of problems. Yeah. You mentioned the networks that you don't own. So you mm -hmm. can only get what the owners of those networks, right? The cloud provider, for example, will will give you, whether those are you know VPC flow logs or Google system logs. All right, right. so you have that. Can you get more? And that's when you start to be creative. Um, you know, if you are uh, running containers, you can start looking at things like eBPF, where you can look at uh, you know kernel level visibility, which also uh, gives you the ability to look at container networking, um, which is kind of a cool thing. Not many people are doing that right now. Um, but it really, uh, you, you need to think of it in terms of having a diversity of visibility, um, a variety, um, having all, your entire egg, all your eggs in one basket is going to result in, you know, an incomplete picture. Mm -hmm. And so using traditional methods like flow and SNMP, uh, packet captures where you need to, where you need to troubleshoot eBPF now streaming, if you're able to, uh, having that diversity is going to give you a more complete picture than um, than otherwise. And that's what you need today because you are looking at having like, I guess you can call them like islands of visibility, right? Mm -hmm. I can see a little bit about what's going on in my uh, AWS region. Okay, that's cool. I can see a little bit there. I can see what's going on on my LAN and in my private data center. I don't really know much about what's going on in between. Over here, I have these CASBs. I don't, I don't know what's exactly going on there except this, this little bit of telemetry that they give me. So you have these islands or pockets. Maybe they're archipelagos. Yeah, know. there you go. Yeah. But you have these well, things. I, my background you... is geography, so I can bring archipelago will work. That's archipelago. Yeah. So you have these, these, you know, these, these pockets of visibility. How do you understand how they relate to each other? And then another problem with this telemetry that we're looking at today. So these are the problems that that we're facing um, with this, um, uh, with disparate network resources and um, and um, distributed architectures. Right. Um, your your data itself is is very 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 diverse in the mm -hmm. sense that you have like millions of packets right so you have packets per second to look at and over here you have a percentage right sixty seven percent of your traffic is HTTPS well that's a percentage here you have millions of packets per second here you have a percentage maybe you're also looking at uh, temperature of your CPU you know um, mm -hmm. uh, on some bare metal servers that you own these are all completely different. Uh, 
uh, things. So how do you compare them? How do you draw them all into a, a single platform so you can make some sort of conclusion about the big picture? This is what observability right. is all about, by the mm -hmm. way. And uh, that's where you start to get into the really cool stuff where the data scientists begin to wax eloquent about you know AI and machine learning and uh, scaling and normalization. And, and then how do you correlate uh, disparate data? How do you get them on mm -hmm. the same scale? Very interesting. But those are the kind of problems that we face now when you have uh, networks that you don't own, that you have overlays like SD-WAN, or maybe you're running some kind of VXLAN overlay in your data center, and also incorporating things like public cloud uh, and, uh, and, you know, and everything in between. Mm -hmm. So, so those, those for, as far as visibility are concerned, those are the problems that are plaguing actual network engineers trying to fix problems. Why is my application slow? And also security folks like saying, where are we breaking encryption between, you know, this end to end uh, flow here? Uh, or, uh, you know, who, who owns the data that's in motion now, since some of it's on my network and some of it's on someone else, how do I ensure right. compliance with whatever regulatory body? So the, uh, it, it gets, it gets very tangled very quickly. Yeah. So, so does that make it harder for someone like Kentic to present an end customer with the vaunted single pane of glass, right? Um, yeah. uh, or are you able to sort of resynthesize all those disparate data, like you said, again, it might bring up a, a kind of philosophical problem of, okay, well, what do these data mean for the, the, the network user? Or maybe what do they mean for the security uh, team at, on the IT infrastructure team? And are those different things sometimes? Um, are you able to kind of put that all together in the background? Or do they need to bring something into that sort of uh, visibility as well? So when you say they, do you mean do you mean Kentic or kind of the industry? No, I, by they I would mean you know the end user. So end so user. sorry, yeah, that that like um, that that in in other words, to to put it as you know sort of really clearly, what a lot of end users want is to log on to something and have it mm -hmm. tell them what's going on. Right? Yeah, are we are we close to that? You know, we're getting closer. Yeah. Now, uh, are we getting are we getting to the point where it's like the enterprise, right? I'm a big Star Trek fan, and I can tell the computer, computer, what is wrong? <laughs> like right. Jordy LaForge talking to uh, talking to you know the, the, the enterprise computer, right? Yeah, well, I'm such I'm such a, a Star Trek nerd that it would be Major uh, Barrett who would who would answer, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, and uh, that that that's not quite where we are. We're not at that level of automation and programmability, and uh, um, you know. Maybe that's like the pie in the sky of SDN, right? Of, mm -hmm. uh, of true mm -hmm. uh, software-defined networking. But uh, where where we are today, oh, well, you know, before we I even get into it, I do want to make a point that a lot of these things are like security, uh, application monitoring, application performance monitoring, network performance monitoring. They're all using the same data under the hood for the most mm -hmm. part. There's mm -hmm. some variation, right? You know, an APM tool is going to look at code level stuff more than an NPM tool would. But, but. They're all looking at packets, flows, uh, logs, uh, VPC flow logs, um, all this different telemetry, but they're all looking at the same telemetry, but from a different perspective. So am, is there some kind of an exfiltration going on? What are my endpoints? So a security person is going to be concerned with that, but it's still TCP IP and flows, right? And then a performance or an engineer, a performance engineer or a network engineer concerned about a poorly performing network is looking at the same data from a different angle. So for us at Kentic and for any kind of mature and maturing visibility platform, it's really about collecting as much information as possible, right? Like right. in uh, short circuit, you had Johnny Five and more <laughs> input, right? Yeah. 
you want that's by the way that that came from Avi Friedman, the CEO and founder, nice. co-founder of Kentic. I did not come up with that, but I, I was going to say only so, Gen X and above are going to get that reference, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I totally, I, I love that movie. But yeah. but in any case, that's the idea: is getting as much as you can because. The volume and then also the quality of the data is going to determine uh, the outcome of your analysis. Mm -hmm. So when you have a security engineer, uh, application performance monitoring engineer, is that an engineer, an application person and, and a network person, they're all looking at the same data from different angles. And so what we need to do behind the scenes is find those correlations um, strong correlations as opposed to weak correlations that can give some sort of insight. That's the hot term right now, actionable insight right. into why an application is slow. So we want to get there very quickly. So I feel like what's going on with network visibility in general uh, is is more of like layering on a, a service layer for network operations. You know, how can we make mm. the life of an engineer better and easier? How do we get to that mean time to innocence faster? <laughs> you know, I'm going to change. I got, I've got to use that one for sure. Yeah, yeah I'm going to say yeah. meantime the resolution because yeah. you know I, this idea that I'm I'm the network person and I'm just trying to prove my innocence and then I'm done and I leave the conference room. That's mm-hmm. baloney. That doesn't mm-hmm. happen anymore, or maybe it never did. I don't know. But I'm working with the security person and with the application person. We're all looking at the same data, just concerned with different things, and so. All of that I just said poses a significant problem for those data scientists trying to figure out how do we now make sure that those anomalies are accurate and not false positives? And how do we identify uh, when a security threat is is truly occurring and it's not simply, um, you know, some kind of a seasonal pattern in traffic? How do we Mm -hmm. tweak our algorithms and um, whatever statistical analysis we're using so that way it's as accurate as possible? Because when it comes down to it as an engineer, I need to be able to trust my system. Mm-hmm. Is this thing correct? Is this insight accurate? Um, and again, it applies across the board for application folks, network folks, um, uh, security folks, all looking at that same data. Right. And what's interesting, something that we do at Kentic that I really think is cool is we also take cost into, into account. Ah. How much do transit links uh, cost? How much right. does this path from this AS to this AS to this, how much is that actually costing you as a company? What does this peering relationship cost? So not only do we factor in all this uh, variety of telemetry, we factor in things like cost and geolocation and threat feeds. Because, you know, the old saying, garbage in, garbage out. You right. want as high quality data as possible. And then as much as possible, the larger the data set, the more accurate your prediction can be and and that sort of thing. So as a security person, uh, I'm looking at flows primarily, not necessarily looking at the flows, but the system is looking at flows primarily to identify patterns in traffic, patterns that uh, correlate with known attack vectors. Oh, this is a DDoS attack. All right, fire off an alert. Well, a security person is is, you know, they're excited about that. I have a right. real-time alert about DDoS, came from flows. And on the and then you have a network performance person looking at flows, being able to break down what's going on between these two ends of this conversation, this server in AWS and then uh, this branch location, and then break down maybe using packets to look at what the server response time is. Why exactly is that application slow? It's the, it's the same telemetry, but for, from a different angle, looking at performance. Mm-hmm. So it's it's difficult. In the sense that there's a lot of it, and the and the and the the data itself is very disparate. Like I said earlier, how you know you have percent over here, and then you know packets per second over here. So that therein lies the difficulty. Right. Um, but the idea, I think, is is pretty straightforward. Make make the life of a network engineer or security engineer right. Make it better. How do we get mm-hmm. to that resolution faster? 
All right. So you were talking about um, some some network problems, application problems, um, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, how do you put together from a visibility standpoint um, the the overlay and the underlay, and how how well are those working together? Uh, particularly, maybe there's some cases where you, you have very different vendors for that. Again, certainly a lot of folks have their um, overlay managed by their underlay providers and whatnot, but very often not the case. Do, does that right. present uh, additional difficulties? Yeah. You know, that's part of this bigger picture of collecting as much telemetry as we can from mm-hmm. as many sources as we can and ensuring its accuracy and its quality. But in the case of going back to SD-WAN, the beginning of our entire conversation, you know, we have an overlay network and an underlay network. There's tunneling going on, IPsec, VXLAN possibly. That's a common uh, protocol that's, well, common for some. There's mm-hmm. proprietary things going on. And ha- we, we need to collect that information as well because there is an entire kind of second virtual network riding on top of the underlay, the, right. the infrastructure that we're, uh, we're not managing probably. And so that poses an issue. Uh, how do I how do I correlate information from my underlay from my provider, wh- whoever it happens to be, or multiple providers if I have a very large network with my overlay network that I do manage? And if it is an overlay network that you do manage, uh, is it proprietary in that you you can't really get much information other than what you see on like your dashboard to manage mm-hmm. your SD WAN? See, so is is there anything else I can get? So right. so there are some problems that we're seeing with um, SD WAN visibility that now that it's starting to mature and. Uh, become so ubiquitous that folks are seeing, you know, the the, the actual problems of running an SD WAN are manifesting themselves finally, um, right. and and visibility is one of them. But I thought all it did was solve problems. <laughs> all it did was solve problems. All your problems will be solved, and yeah. put a bow on it, and you're good, and you can yeah. just no no more pager duty, none of that stuff. And uh, and and you know we joke. But it, it is silly. It's the changing nature of technology, right? It, you know, you fix one problem and it kind of opens the door to a new set of problems. But mm-hmm. that's what we do as engineers. This is right. one of the reasons I love this field is because we fix things and, and make it work. And in this case, with visibility, you know, the thing that we're trying to fix is how do we how do we correlate, you know, activity on on my MPLS, which I don't own. I'm paying, you know, lease lines and this and that, whatever. And then I have multiple uh, providers connecting from my branch location to my data center, for example, in the Midwest US, so thousands of miles away. How do I correlate actual real-time activity with what's happening on my my SD-WAN? So, uh, you know, having a platform to be able to consume telemetry from both of those sources and then to accurately uh, represent Mm -hmm. something that's statistically interesting. But then here's a cool thing, not just statistically interesting, but also like important to a real human engineer that's trying to fix a problem, right? Uh, An example is, um, I used this at a a recent uh, event that I spoke at. I talked about having a a 400 gig link in your data center. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's humming along at one meg a day. It's it's like a back, (laughs) whatever, but it's rarely used. Right. And then one day you see, and you know, you get an alert that it went from one meg, one meg on a 400 gig link to 100 megs. That's a statistically huge difference. So right. you're going to start getting all sorts of alerts that are firing because your your system but is it's well within the capability of your 400 gig link. <laughs> so well within the capability <laughs> that it means absolutely nothing with right. regard to application performance because that's what we care about here. That's what the network is, right? It's just plumbing. It really means nothing. So right. do what do I do? So so you need to actually find a way. Uh, to not only identify, accurately identify those things that are statistically interesting, but then somehow add the subjective component to your algorithms or to your, whatever you're doing in your system 
to then determine if that in, statistically interesting thing is actually relevant or important to a human being. That's right. hard. Yeah. So that's that's difficult. And and so, you know, collecting telemetry from sources that we don't own or manage, which is typical in an SD-WAN, and then being able to figure out what do I alert on so I don't just create the old alert fatigue that mm -hmm. uh, that many of us have experienced. And ultimately, then what, what do we do? We just ignore the alerts. We turn them off. Right. We'll exactly. So, if, if everything is a problem, then nothing is. Right. It, there you go. Exactly. So some interesting stuff that's going on. And, and you know, I think that part of the, the, the reason that we're able to make uh, the progress that we're making lately is um, is because the, of the availability of, of storage and, and compute today is, is very different than it was let's say 15 years ago 10 years mm -hmm. ago uh, now it's it's much easier to um, to really throw a lot of resources uh, at you know having huge data sets and then being right. able to, to crunch on it you know um, you know there was a time when it was just the folks at MIT and Stanford that could do that and now you know you could spin up those resources in AWS and do a lot mm -hmm. of that yourself so I think that's one of the reasons that we're making the progress that we're making in, in visibility and observability yeah, that, that's really interesting because it, it gets into territory that's kind of beyond uh, telecom. It's beyond the network. It's even beyond networking tools into just kind of general, uh, you know, AI and data science and, and sort of um, yeah. problems that people in in kind of much more maybe sort of uh, consumer oriented fields mm -hmm. and that sort of thing are, are dealing with the, the same kinds of things, but bringing that into our little world, which I find really fascinating because um, but, you know, think about so it much this yet way. to be done. Mm -hmm. you, you think about like some physicists or astrophysicists, right? That mm -hmm. are super cool because they get to work on like Hubble and, and discover right. galaxies. Super nerds like me, right? Maybe they love Star Trek too. And uh, and they're collecting a ton of data from, from the James Webb and from Hubble and all these places, right? These physicists or astrophysicists, whatever they are, well, they also happen to know Python and they also happen to right. have, you know, huge databases and they also happen to use columnar databases and pivot tables on Excel and, and, and graph DB. Are, are they, are they doing anything weird? No, they're using tools to right. kind of solve their problem of how do we, you know, make sense of this data. So I don't, I don't know if it's really, I don't, I don't agree that it's really like weird that we're applying it to networking. Mm -hmm. I think it's cool. And, right. and I think it's long overdue because now we have this incredible amount of telemetry at our fingertips and it's growing because we have new things uh, like streaming and EBPF that haven't been traditionally used. But how do we, how do we, how do we work it to, to give us something useful? Just like that, you know, just like that astrophysicist you know, writing a Python script in order to right. do something with your data. They're not, they're not programmers. They're right. still physicists. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, a network engineer working at whatever, you know, telecom provider, they're not necessarily programmers. They're just using another tool to make their job uh, easier, better to find yeah. the answers. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I, I, I actually, uh, I tell my kids this all the time. Yeah. Like, that uh, that you you need to learn to code no matter what you want to do <laughs> because it's just better to be doing your own code necessarily than uh, you know uh, you, you, my one son wants to be a, a nuclear engineer for example it's like well you don't need to learn coding for coding sake you need to learn coding for your physics sake right <laughs> so, yeah. exactly yeah yeah and and you know certainly um, I, I hear that from from network engineers a, a lot that um, that the, the sort of the, the next frontier in a sense is, you know, a buzzy word, but, you know, kind of the, the network as code and, the, and that sort of yeah. thing. Right. So, yep. um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then that brings us, I think, to, to the sort of conclusion here, which is 
what does the WAN look like? Not necessarily from a visibility standpoint, yeah. but from a conceptual standpoint in, in the next several years, you think? Yeah. Well, one one thing is is for sure. We're gonna we're gonna look at the uh, the WAN like we're looking at cloud, right? Uh, more strategically. Mm-hmm. Does it always make sense to rip and replace all my my traditional routers? with uh, SD-WAN boxes? And, and sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes no. And the answer may be no, because I'm locked into contracts for the next five years. Right. And remember, if you're going to rip and replace your entire WAN with an SD-WAN, I mean, that's a project. Right. <laughs> that doesn't happen in one weekend. That's a, that's a three-year project anyway. Yeah, I, sh- I should say, we, we, we've we asked this question, actually, and, and we got the vast majority of SD-WAN deployments took more than one year. So Exactly. Yeah. And, and yeah, we, we're usually talking to people with pretty big networks, but still, mm-hmm. like, you know, yeah. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And that's the reality of the implementation. Like I was talking about earlier. It takes a long time to cut over site by site by site, especially if you want to do it methodically without incurring a, a crazy amount of downtime. But we're going to look at the WAN and, and the cloud and, and all that in, in that way, more strategically mm-hmm. um, from a cost perspective, from technical and business constraint perspective. But what does it look like from an actual uh, thing? You know, I, I, I do believe that we are going to see uh, growth in SD-WAN. I, I mean, mm-hmm. in spite of what I just said, I... Uh, I wasn't really like when I work. I worked for a very big national VAR. I wasn't really talking about routers that much. Uh, it was almost always SD WAN uh, mm-hmm, when we were mm-hmm. talking about a WAN upgrade uh, or you know upgrading branch sites or retail locations. It was usually SD WAN. Sure. The only you know the only exceptions would be for the you know when we were talking about huge, um, big iron data center routers or some you know one-off like that healthcare system. But generally speaking, I, I think we're going to see the continued growth of SD-WAN. Now, here's something that I want to throw out there, though, I've been thinking about recently. How, how, does, how is this going to look when you have maybe fewer branch offices and, and mm-hmm. more people working from home? Mm-hmm. You know, do, do I really need uh, to rip and replace my WAN with an SD-WAN right now? Um, and how, how do CASBs play into this and other direct-to-cloud resources that I can right. offer my work from home uh, workforce. So, so there is a question mark there and I don't know the answer because uh, there is a whole return to office thing going on and, you know, may, maybe it's a moot point. Well, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I look into this a fair bit because it impacts kind of some of the things I do, like forecasting when uh, revenue and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and um, the, the, the folks who, who, you know, sort of know about this price water, PwC and, and yeah. McKinsey and stuff like that, you know, they, they're seeing, pushback from from the manager class but it all is going to come down to i think uh you know employee clout because nobody wants to to go five days a week back right so yeah. you know you know uh yeah. and we, we we you know we we've seen it kind of i think maybe stabilize at where it is kind of now uh and and i i hear that from some of the WAN managers i've talked to who are all mostly working from home as our most it back office kind of people right so I think they're preparing for that. So, so yeah. however it really does end up, that that's the way the WAN manager community is thinking about the future of the WAN right now anyway. So. Yeah, which presupposes then that there uh, is going to be a continued decrease of the traditional perimeter, which we've seen right. for years already anyway, right. but uh, even, even more so. I think that's going to just uh, expedite that process. Um, and it's going to continue to push services to the edge. To mm-hmm. when I say the edge, I mean maybe to the endpoint itself. Um, right. You know, what what can I do on the endpoint that I used to do at the branch level uh, because mm-hmm. there is no branch. Um, so so yeah, I think I think we're going to see some. Of, I'm already start, starting to see a lot of those changes um, instead of the the network security component 
at the branch office. Everything is just deployed on the end endpoint now. That's a that's a really important point because, it, like you said, certainly before COVID, it, it was moving in that direction anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we all became, but now you have this situation where maybe you know in in some lines of work, right? Um, uh, obviously, this this varies a lot by by vertical, but. Um, there's going to be folks where the vast majority of your end users aren't near a device, a router of any kind that you own, right? That, so everything that you do has to be done on their device yeah. itself, right? So it's all software-based and that kind of thing, right? So. Yeah, yeah. And and therein lies the problem that we, we mentioned earlier. Uh, how do you capture telemetry from that, right. considering they are running on a network that you don't own at their house and then with some provider that you don't have a relationship with as right. the network manager? You don't have a relationship with their... A residential provider, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and then how do you ensure application delivery is is top notch, top quality when it's again to over some network you don't own to some to some house somewhere, mm-hmm. um, and so you know there, there's a lot of problems and, and the visibility portion too. How do you how do you uh, capture that and correlate that with things going on in the day? It's it's tough, but but that is where we are, and uh, and I, I I really am interested in seeing how we are using a lot of um, a lot of technology from from other you know, fields like data science, like you mentioned to solve these things, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's kind of what keeps it fun, right? (laughs) It's that it is, it is, uh, uh, never static, right? So, um, never static. uh, Yeah. I Um, never thought I would be, uh, searching on YouTube for machine learning courses, you know, like Stanford has free machine learning courses. Yeah. I, that's what I'm doing a lot lately. It's crazy. I never thought I'd be doing that. I'm, mm-hmm. I used to be studying BGP stuff, and now I'm trying to figure out how this, you know, this algorithm works. I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, that that's that back to sort of like utilizing the tools from all other fields, like in in a way that benefits your field. I think is mm-hmm. is the key, right? So. Excellent. All right. Well, Phil, this was was super interesting. I think um, I, I, this is one where I, I might go back and listen do it again and try to get nailed down on, on the, some of the visibility stuff, because I think there's so much, um, that will be happening there in, in the next few years. So, oh, yeah, sure. yeah. So thanks so much for joining us. Um, let's definitely catch up and, and, and see how all of this emerges. Great. Great. Look forward to it. Excellent. All right. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Telegeography Explains the Internet comes from the experts here at Telegeography. It's edited and produced by Jane Miller, and it's hosted by me, Greg Bryan. And I also wrote that theme song you're listening to right now. To learn more about our data, jump over to telegeography.com, and we'll see you on the Internet.